The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Psalm 8. Um, Let's turn to Psalm 8 and and I'll start reading. We'll just read that whole chapter. It's only nine verses. We can handle it. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babies and infants, You have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Great psalm and a great way to finish up our summer teaching series through the Old Testament. And here we come to some poetic language, some poetic literature and genre in the Old Testament. And you'll notice that each psalm, if you look in your Bible, uh, each psalm has a, a title, a heading, It's like a title for a chapter, like a new chapter uh, in a book. And these were never part of Scripture. Maybe you didn't know that. Maybe that's news to you, that these were actually never part of Scripture. These were added later, really for our benefit, uh, added uh, by scribes and scholars to kind of just give a heading uh, to the Scripture passage that was before them. And Psalm 8 bears the title, How Majestic Is Your Name? And I'd like to uh, offer a uh, revision uh, to Psalm 8, just the, just the heading. I'm not changing scripture here because that's not scripture. That was put there by somebody. Uh, I'm going to like to add a revision for the title just to prepare us for reading this passage. And for the purposes of this morning in Psalm 8, I'd like to title this, The Cure for the Self-Obsessed Identity. Is that good? The Self-Obsessed Identity. Because this is what Psalm 8 does. It, uh, when we thoughtfully consider the psalm and, and what it's about, And what God desires to communicate to us through this, um, it cures us from a life that is self-absorbed, self-obsessed, self-esteemed, self-focused. It cures us from looking at ourself and being consumed by things in our life and thinking that the world revolves around us. Self-esteem, it's one of those words maybe you haven't used in a while. It's a word that Really, I don't know, we, we figured out what it meant in middle school and kind of carried it through high school, right? It's, it's, a, it's an adolescent or a pre-adolescent word that we use a lot. What did it mean? Well, it, it meant that this person, uh, if they have a low self-esteem, they don't really know who they are. They don't have a, a, a confidence in their ability. They don't, they don't really have a self-confidence in, in what they can do and who they are. And, and, um, or... Uh, they, they had a high self-esteem, and so they were, they were the, you know, the boys and girls in school that were very outgoing and had a lot of friends and were really popular, and, and whatever they did, they succeeded at, and, and they were confident. If they, they had a task or a challenge in front of them, they, they went forward with, with great confidence. They had a high self-esteem, low self-esteem kids. Uh, maybe you were one of them, were, were timid and careful, um, cautious, and, and dejected often when you failed at something that you tried. You just felt really beat up and and you were said to have a low self-esteem. Um, maybe you didn't always fit in because of the way you looked or the way you acted or uh, the things that you said or um, the family you belonged to. Whatever it was, there were different reasons. And self-esteem is really a, a juvenile word, and so it's kind of preteen. It's kind of kiddish. And, 
Uh, when was the last time you, you talked to somebody and asked them how they were doing, and you said, how are you doing today? How, how's your week been? How's your heart? And they said, you know, I'm just really struggling with low self-esteem. You ever heard that in a while? I haven't heard that in years. Uh, and so because adults have, we've graduated from, from using that language. We have, we, we've, we've beat it, right? We no longer struggle with self-esteem, do we? Uh, we've, we use, we, I think we use actually just different words to describe a low self-esteem. Uh, more sophisticated phrases. Here's a couple uh, for you to consider. One is, I'm stressed. I'm stressed. Consider this if, if you've ever felt, have said these things to yourself or in your heart. There are, there are people who expect things from me and I couldn't bear the idea of letting them down. It causes a lot of stress in my life. Or if I keep pressing myself, I'll, I'll finally be someone important. If I keep, if I keep pushing myself further, then, I will, then I'll be important. I'll have value. I will, I will look at myself and not be ashamed. Another is I keep trying to do good, to appear good to those who are watching. And so I'm, going to, I'm just going to be a good person so that when people look at me, they, they see me as, wow, that's a great guy. That's a really great girl. I want to hang out with her. And that causes stress in your life. And so when someone welcomes us in the morning and says, how are you doing? Well, I'm just really stressed. Sometimes that could just be a replacement for saying, I have a really low self-esteem. I care so much about what people think about me, and it's just ruining my life. Here's another one. We might lose some members here with this one. I'm busy. I'm busy. Now, I, I crave attention. Have you ever thought this? I, I crave affirmation and recognition from people around me so much that I, I never so, say no to anyone or anything. I stay busy because I want more stuff, newer stuff, better stuff. And the more I have, the more important I feel. And if I can just get that thing that my neighbor has, and so I'm going to work really hard, I'm going to put in extra hours to get that, to feel valued and validated and be able to share something with my neighbor. Or I need to, say, I need to stay busy because I need to stay in control. I can't let up and risk making a mistake. And so when we welcome someone in the morning, maybe you said it today, um, I was careful not to say it just because I knew I was going to be preaching like this. <laughs> How are you doing? I've just been really busy. It's code word for saying I, I'm struggling with a low self-esteem. I'm so busy in my life. Now, God is not against ambition. I want to say that from the onset. God is not against ambition. He is not against working hard. He is not against sacrificing time and energy and loving people well. Because if you love people well, you're going to be busy. You're going to sacrifice. You're going to give up time. But, but never in such a way that our, our sense of self-worth or sense of value or sense of importance is wrapped up in what we do or what we have or what we accomplish or what we look like, or how we perform. Oftentimes, sometimes really being busy and loving others well and sacrificing is actually the opposite of sin. It's, it's actually a, a mark of, of, of healthy uh, Christianity and really loving God and others well. Psalm 8 is the, is the answer to an individual obsession with our identity, with ourselves. It's the cure and here's how it does this as Psalm 8 walks through it somewhat systematically and orderly in a great way, as it, it, and it just breaks it up into three different parts, which is really helpful, uh, because I, can't, I don't know how to give a four-point sermon, <laughs> so it's going to be three uh, today. And here's how, here's how it does this. Here's how it, it answers the, the cure to the individual obsession with ourselves. And first, it says, look up to the God who never changes. Look up to the God who never changes. A step 
towards the cure of a self-obsessed life is to know what is constant, to, to look at God. The psalmist points us to the glory and the majesty of our Creator. You have set your glory. He says, how majestic is your name? You've set your glory in the heavens. It fills the earth. Are, are you going through something right now? Are you struggling? And Are you in a particular season of an identity stress? Struggling with a low self-esteem or call it whatever you want. You're stressed. You're busy. You're confused. You're troubled in your life in so many ways. Then look up. Then look away from yourself and, and see the glory of God. The majesty of God, fixed and firm and established, that never changes. That's what the psalmist is saying. It's the first step to this cure for a self-obsessed life. Look up to God. Stop looking. They call it navel-gazing, right? Stop looking at yourself. Stop, stop looking so much inwardly. You're getting trapped in your own problems. Like, look up to God and see His goodness. See His glory. Often our struggle with our identity and who we are and a low self-esteem is associated with a lack of recognizing the glory and majesty of God. Often we see that in a deepest root. If we really look into our heart, we see our struggle with our self-esteem is really a lack of seeing God in His glory and in His majesty for who He is. God's glory transcends even the heavens, and it, it evokes a certain kind of praise when we, when we look at the heavens. When you see something amazing, that's what it does. When you see something spectacular, uh, that is outside of yourself. That's what it does. It evokes praise, even spontaneous praise. You guys been watching the Olympics last week and a half, two weeks? Yeah. Uh, you can always you can always tell what a pastor, how a pastor has been spending their time by the illustrations that he gives. I think. And so today's gonna be all about the Olympics. All right. Um, I'll tell me. Have you ever found yourself as you've been watching the Olympics? You ever found yourself talking to the TV? or even uh, exclaiming uh, verbally um, with, with a sense of uh, excitement or disappointment or uh, devastation if, if, you're, if, you're, you know, if our team lost, if our country lost in that, in that final moment, just missed it by inches. Um, you see Michael Phelps win his 28th, goal, 28th medal, right? Just amazing. And you're just, and you're just like, wow. You, 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 you kind of audibly interact with the TV as you're seeing these things. You see Simone uh, Biles stick that landing on her floor routine, and you just like, out loud, you're talking, no one's in the room, and you're just like, oh my goodness, how do you do that, right? You, you've done it, right? You see Usain Bolt run, you know, 200 meters in less than 20 seconds. So it evokes a certain kind of praise when we see a certain kind of glory and, and majesty, and why do we do that? Why do we talk to a an inanimate object, a TV, I mean, they, there is no response. Why do, we, why do we act that way spontaneously? And here's the real reason is because we know we can't do that. We know that, that we can't do that. And we feel a little guilty. Our self-esteem is low because they're, they're beautiful and we're eating ice cream watching the Olympics. And you're like, <laughs> well, I'm a loser, you know. When are the Olympics over? I start feeling better about myself. Uh, this is a form of praise. It's a form of worship, and I want you to recognize it. It's a form of ascribing praise and worth to someone and to something because it's, it evokes a certain kind of spontaneous praise because we, can, it's, it's, we can't do that. It is glorious. It's good. It's majestic. It's beyond us. And God's glory is revealed in the heavens. And as we look up to the stars and we see that the heavens are ordered with majesty, the Bible is saying that this is just a, 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 a simple part of God's glory, and that is beautiful. 
how much more glorious is God himself? That this is the work of his fingers. What is, what is his whole being like if his finger can do this? It's meant to tell us something about God, his glory that's revealed in the heavens and also in the earth as we go on hikes and as we see the sunsets. And even things like this, they seem cliche as we look at beautiful things, but it's real. It's, it's the glory of God that's revealed in our presence. And it's meant to reveal something about the nature and character of God. His name, the Bible says, his name, the very manifestation of who he is, is being made known to us. His character is, and nature is constant. Look at the, in these three first verses, we see this language. You have set your glory above the heavens. You have established your strength. You, the work of your fingers are set in place. He's using these words to communicate to us that he is glorious and majestic and powerful and unchanging, and he's infinitely so. Set and established and fixed. God isn't changing. This is who he has been from eternity past. This is who he is infinitely. A God of order, not a God of chaos. A God of intention, not a God of, of coincidence. A God of sovereignty, not a God of chance. He's good and intentional and unchanging and sovereign and infinitely all of those things. And before the psalmist gets fully into thinking about himself and the gift that's been given to him, he recognizes that, his, that, his, uh, that it's not through human glory, human glory, that we become esteemed and, and valuable and, 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 and receive self-worth and important, but it's through this childlike recognition of the glory of God. We see the, we see the glory of God in his majesty, and, we, and like a child, we... We trust in it and we hope in it. So the psalmist is saying, he's getting to this point that it's not in the, what the human can do that makes us glorious and what makes us great. It's, it's actually in what God is doing. It's something outside of us that causes us to, to feel important. But do you see this? He, he says in verse 2, he says, Out of the mouth of babies and infants you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. So he talks about the strength, the perceived strength of babies and the perceived strength of villains. And, and what do the villains do? The villains are strong, aren't they? I mean, in every uh, comic book, in every comic movie um, that was made into a movie or a series, uh, any bad guy, they usually are really strong, powerful. But the villains are arrogant in their own strength. And they're, they're arrogant in their own power. And they're puffed up with their, with their ability. And babies, on the other hand, are... Nothing, well, they're much more than this, but they're, they're nothing less than a symbol of human weakness and vulnerability. Uh, that's kind of their best job at, this, at the very beginning is to just show us what it's like to be in need and to be needy and to be weak and to be vulnerable and to needing to be cared for. They're hopeless. I turned to my wife this week. Our son is four years old, and I turned to her and said, I think that Cohen, our son, is finally at the age where he can completely care for himself and he survive to adulthood without us. <laughs> she disagreed. Uh, <clears throat> but I thought, no, I think four years old, that, that's good. Four, they can, he, he can figure it out. He knows where the rocket crackers are. He can figure it out. But, um, yeah, babies and infants are, are weak, and villains um, find confidence in their strength. And and here the psalmist is flipping it. He's saying this is how the power of God is revealed, that it's villains that, that who trust in their own power and ability, that they are proven to be actually weak, and it's the babies who, with a childlike faith, look at the glory of God. God is working through them to express his power and his strengths. 
He says that if you keep looking to your human glory, if you keep looking to who you are and your strength within yourself to find your importance, then you'll find yourself actually, and this is the hard part, you'll find yourself actually at odds with God, with the God of the universe. Even so much that you're, you're, you're kind of a villain to the glory of God. So for every person who looks within themselves and their ability and their ability to attain things and acquire things and find their self-worth in what they can accomplish, he says you're kind of like a villain. You're a villain that's opposed to the very gospel, the very nature of God, the very way that God manifests his power and goodness in the world. You're against him if you're trusting in yourself and what you can do. And though the universe is vast and makes mankind feel small and insignificant, God gives to mankind this extraordinary position of strength and identity within the universe apart from their own glory but because of his glory and then there is this thing a second cure the first cure is to look up and you guys need to do that if you're struggling with who am i and why am i here and what is my purpose in life and 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 what does my future hold that we should look up to God and see him majestic and glorious and see him strong and see him wise and good and see that he never changes. And then the psalmist turns to himself and the second cure, the second step to a curing for the self-obsessed life is to resist placing your hope in something that always changes. What is man that you are mindful of him? That's what question he asks. When you, when you look up at the heavens and see the glory and majesty of God, you, and you're moved to a spontaneous praise when you acknowledge his beautiful perfection. We can't help but acknowledge how less we are, how weak we are, how deficient we are in ourselves, right? We kind of joked about it just a moment ago when we see these Olympians and these champions and the best athletes in the world, and we're sitting there, and we say, well, gosh, I'm no good. And we're eating the ice cream, whatever, right? So it, we joke about it, but we recognize that when we see greatness, we can't help but say, how do I compare in relation to that greatness? So if we feel that way with Olympians, how, are we, how should we feel with God? When we look at God and we actually see his glory and majesty as it is, this is actually what the psalmist does. It's not self-deprecating. It's not, it's, it's not self-deprecating. He doesn't hate himself. He, he's self-aware. Uh, would you ask that question along with the psalmist? What is man that you'd be mindful of me? Would you ask that question? God, who am I that you would even care for me? Who, who am I that you would even fill your, your thoughts with me? If someone came to you in a personal time of need, in a great personal, uh, you know, a, a crisis of self-esteem, and they were very beat down on themselves, they were dejected, depressed, discouraged by their life, and said, why does God even care? Why does he care about me, and why, should he, why, why, should God just, why shouldn't he just be done with me? Can you think for a moment how you might respond? Many of us would go to a certain place like this, and it would sound something like this. They we would say, oh, come on. Don't, don't, think about, don't think about yourself like that. You're awesome. Look at your friends. You're a great person. Look at your job. You're successful. You're good-looking, you're, you're capable, and the future is bright for you. Don't beat up on yourself. Don't get so down on yourself. Right? We do that. We've given that advice. I don't get the same impression that David, the psalmist, would, would say the same thing. He's actually not. The psalmist is comparing himself to God and the glory of God revealed in the heavens, and then he looks at himself and says, 
just a speck in the universe. I'm just a worm on the planet. I'm just a vapor in the span of time. Who am I? So this is a, this is a literary tactic. It's, it's, it's a rhetorical question. When he says, who is man that you would be mindful of him? It's meant for us, it's meant to show us that the answer is obvious. There aren't many answers to that question. There aren't like 10 different answers we could give. There's one. The answer is this, nothing. What is man that you'd be mindful of me? The answer is, we're nothing. We're a worm on the planet. Like in the, the span of the universe, what are we? Have you ever, you've seen those pictures as they, uh, from outer space as they span out from the planets, from Earth, and, and it's like, who am I? What's going on right there? Why would God even, even consider me? But the Bible says that he actually fills his mind with us. Why? That's really the question we should be asking. And the, the psalmist is intentionally creating a sense of despair in our hearts as we read this to make what comes next so much more powerful. What is man that you'd be mindful of me or the son of man that you would care for me? Man, we really are nothing compared to God. And then he says in verse 5, yet, he says, but yet, hold up a minute. That's where verse 5 starts. Yet, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Man is nothing. Man is a worm. Man is a vapor in the span of time. You're right. As you span out into the cosmos and you see the planets and, and the universe and, and all that there is from the pictures and you look on earth and you say, well, who are we? The answer is we're nothing yet. God has crowned us with glory and honor. The word yet must be the single most beautiful word in the entire Bible. Isn't it? Because it tells us that there is good news for people that are always changing. That there is honor and glory for people who really are not very glorious and not very honorable and that are chaotic and that mess up. It means that there is supreme worth and beauty for people that are not very majestic themselves and highly insignificant in the, in the great span of all that there is. But we are inconsistent. We're relatively minuscule in the comparison to the majesty and glory of God. Do you realize how much you change? I mean, look at your feelings. Your feelings probably changed already today ten times. <laughs> They'll change ten times, ten more times before lunch. You will go through a series of feelings throughout the day and throughout your life that, that contradict one another. Think about what changes your size, your energy, your emotions, your looks, your health, your beliefs. All of these change all the time. The way you speak to someone when you call, the way you speak to me, the way I am speaking to you today at church is going to be different the way that I might speak to uh, my spouse. The way that you speak to a friend is going to be different. Do Starbucks baristas always speak with such a high-pitched voice in the drive-thru? Or is that always how they speak? These are life's big questions. That's one I think about anyway. <laughs> to say that our true confidence and security comes from a love of self is a lie and it's impossible to do. To say that our confidence, that our security comes in putting our trust and rest in something that is constantly changing 
is a lie and impossible to do. What evidence do you have that down deep in your life that you can be trusted? If you were a watch, would you be dependable to tell time? If you were a dishwasher, if you were a car, would you buy yourself? Sounds like a center life skit or something. I don't know. Think about it. Do you realize how chaotic you are and how much, how much changes in your life? Think about just some things that you feel that contradict yourself. I want a 32-inch waist, but I want to eat ice cream every night. I want to be home with my children, but I also want to be a working parent. I want to live in the Southwest, but I want to have a lawn. I want to, <laughs> right? I want to get a good night's sleep, but I also want to watch the Olympics. Do you realize how much you want and how the things that you want and the way that you feel are contradictory to, to themselves and you can't have both? And you're going to put your confidence in that, in someone that's always changing? The notion that we are created to find our self-worth and our identity by looking in ourselves is a lie. We were never created to be constant. We were never created to be unchanging. We were never created to find our identity in ourselves. We were created with a war inside of us, the Bible actually says, that there is this battle between the flesh and the spirit, and the Bible says they're opposed to one another, that in fact we were created as people that have opposing values and opposing beliefs and contradictory loves. The flesh and the spirit that is at war within us, we were never created to look in ourselves and feel self validating. We were never created with the ability to find lasting joy by getting to a place where we can pat ourselves on the back and say, see, I am good. I am happy. Look at what I've done. We were created to do something else. We were created to know the name of God and, the, and to magnify his glory. And that is the only thing that will change this obvious answer to a quest of the question to something very good. The obvious answer is, what is man that you be mindful of him? The obvious answer is nothing. The only thing that will change it from nothing to something very good is that God's glory is given to us. We are created in his image. That we, that we are given, uh, we are crowned with glory and honor. Why would you bother to think of me? Why would you bother to invest time and energy into me? There's something that the gospel says that is so counterintuitive to the modern mind, to the modern wisdom and thinking, and it is this. The gospel tells us that we are far less special than we thought we were, and yet assures us that we are far more loved than we ever thought possible. The modern mind actually says the very opposite. The modern way of thinking says this, you are more special than you think you are, and who cares if anyone else thinks the same? Who cares if anyone ever loves you? What's important is how you love yourself. That's the exact opposite of Psalm 8. No, it's right for you to think that you're less special than you think you are, but you also need to know that you're far more loved than you ever thought possible, even in spite of what you really are. There's a way to be transformed from a, a sense of, of universal and insignificance into an awareness of God's divine and significant plan. And it's this kind of plan and this kind of hope that we place in that cannot change and will never change. And that's the final point, is that 
the final cure in Psalm 8 for a self-obsessed life is to rest in a plan that will never fail. The Bible does not tell us that we are more special than we think we are. It tells us something much better than that, in fact. It tells us that we are part of a plan that cannot fail. We are loved by a God that is, is, not, that is not moved by consequence and by shifts in the culture. That is not moved by our changing emotion and our changing circumstance. The best the, word that, the, the best that the world can tell you and I is that you're important because you're good. Just keep trying and you're important. You'll be fine. But when you realize that you're actually selfish or you lose your job or you're rejected in a relationship, then, you're, then you, you really force yourself to think, are they right? If I'm so great, then why did that person leave me? If I am so capable and awesome, then why was I fired or overlooked for the promotion? If I am such a good husband, then why, then why is my wife stressed and unhappy and angry? You keep telling me that I'm great and glorious and majestic, but I don't really feel that way as I look at my life. Why do we work so hard at finding value and purpose and importance in what we do and how we perform? Because at our core, we truly believe that our destiny depends on us. At our core, we truly think and believe that if we get it right, then we'll have nothing to fear. Verse 6, 7, and 8 tell us the great work for which we were created. Psalm 8 is incomplete without looking at these and without looking at its application in Hebrews chapter 2, but look at 6, 7, and 8. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. You've given, you've given us, God has bestowed honor and glory on us, the crown of his creation, made in his image, according to his likeness. And he has given us dominion over creation to rule with righteousness and wisdom and love and truth. And Psalm 8 is incomplete without looking at Hebrews chapter 2 because Hebrews 2 verse 9 quotes this. And here is what it says. But we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. You see, if we only read Psalm 8, we will say, you know what, we really need to look the cure for the self-obsessed life is to look up to God who is constant, to understand that we are always changing and that our identity is in something that doesn't change, and then to also find value in the work that God has given to us, to care for creation, to steward all that he has given to us well. But we will find ourselves doubting our worth even with just reading Psalm 8 because we'll continue to fail at being all that God has called us to be. Being the person that he's called us to be. He says, okay, I've given you a life and I've bestowed honor and glory on you. Now go and do a good job. Be my representatives on the earth. And we say, great, thank you, God, for this great privilege and honor that you've bestowed on us as the crown of your creation. How are you doing with that? How are you doing caring for creation, caring for stewarding well all that God has given to you, whether it's your work, your finances, your family? How are you doing with that? See, we'll see ourselves just with Psalm 8 continuing to doubt, continuing to feel a low self-esteem because we mess things up all the time. Yet God did create us in His image to be ambitious and righteous and glorious and majestic and representatives of His authority on earth. 
And Hebrews 2 anticipates this problem. And what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say is this, we may fail at God's plan for us to be obedient children that govern well and rule over creation with righteousness, but Jesus has not failed. And he has secured God's plan, and he is the perfect son who has done the work that he was supposed to do and tasted death for everyone who failed to do it right. Have you failed to live up to the glorious identity and honor that God's bestowed on you as being made in his image? Have you failed at being a true representative of God on earth? Probably. (laughs) And that is okay. Because Hebrews 2 says, there was another one who was made for a little while, lower than the angels. Why did Jesus have to become a man? Why did the eternal son of God empty himself of his glory and humble himself to becoming human, not just to identify with us, but to bear our curse, to live the life that we're supposed to live, to be born under the law for those who were bound to the law and cursed in the law, that's you and me, for those who have failed to be human rightly, God had to become human to do it rightly. And he tasted death for us. Do you live in daily awareness of that reality? That God has has completed the work that you have failed to complete? That his plan is is really, um, here's the great thing, his, his plan is independent of you. Because his ultimate plan doesn't depend on you. Because it does not depend on us. Isn't that good news? Have you failed today? Have you failed this weekend as a mother? As a, as a father, as an employee, as a friend? Have you failed today as a, as a citizen and a neighbor? Have you broken your own rules? Have you done things that you promised you would never do in your life? It does not mean that you stop seeking obedience and stop seeking to glorify God in those things, but it does mean that your value does not come about because of your success in those things. Your value is not determined because you're a good mother, a good father, a faithful employee, a good citizen. Your value does not come from you sticking to your plan to to never doing the things that you promise you'll never do. And God will, God's plan to rule over all of creation, to sustain his, and govern his creation, will never fail. And Hebrews 2 says we can then put our hope in that plan, that all of creation and all of God's enemies and all of our enemies will be at, at the feet of Christ. They will become a footstool. He will rule over everything perfectly. And his ultimate plan doesn't depend on us. The universe does not revolve around you and I. And this means you can lay down your work, you can lay down your weary work to find significance, to find value, to find importance in who you are, what you do, and how much you have. Because, you'll, because you fill the mind and thoughts of the God of the universe who loves you. God thinks about you. And not in passing. He fills his thoughts with you. When you realize that, you'll say exactly what the psalmist says. Why? It's not because of anything you've done. It's because of God's pure love for you. His delight in making you, creating you, bestowing his honor on you, and completing the work that he began in you when he revealed the glory of God 
and the work of Christ to you. If you know that you're, if you know, if you want to know how you're um, looking at how you feel, if, you're, if you want to know what it's like to always be looking at yourself, to find your identity, uh, you'll, you'll rip yourself apart because it's like this. It's like pushing on the gas and the brake in your car at the same time. It's like trying to be good but also knowing that you fail. It's like trying to push on both and say, why can't I just go forward? You'll rip yourself apart. You'll destroy yourself. You'll destroy your transmission. It'll all just be a one big mess. But if you see Jesus crowned with glory and honor as your substitute, only then will you be free to, to sort out the self-obsessed life and to trust in him and to be at peace with who you are and how he has made you. Only then will Jesus be truly enough for you. One last Olympic illustration, and then I promise we're done. Helen uh, Maroulis, she made history this last week. She became an Olympic champion, the first ever U.S. Uh, first ever woman to get the gold in wrestling, ever. And she, it was the same day that this whole like Locky Gate stuff blew up. You know what I'm talking about, right? So you know, Olympic swimmer made this huge lie to cover up a bunch of shenanigans, drunken shenanigans. And the whole news and all the Olympic news was centered around Lockie. Meanwhile, this girl is making history and she doesn't really get any coverage. And her event is just overshadowed by this guy. And she was interviewed eventually and they said, you know, we're really sorry. How did it feel that, you know, here you are making history and no one really paid attention, no one really cared. And here's what she says. I didn't come here to win a gold medal in order to find something within myself or some peace within myself. I found self-worth before I stepped on the mat. Hmm. I wonder what she can mean. <laughs> Sounds a little bit like maybe what we've been talking about. Could mean anything, right? I found my self-worth. I, I just, before I came to the Olympics, I got engaged. And I finally figured out who I was. And that's all that matters because of my partner. I found my self-worth because I, I finally, you know, had a child. And that's how that God created me to be a mom. And uh, now that I'm a mom, no matter what happens, I'm fine. What, could she mean those things? Because those are the things that we say. Well, I, I just, uh, yeah, before I came to the Olympics, I, I don't know, finally, finally got those shoes on sale that I've been wanting all season. <laughs> I mean, what, what could it be? Uh, so she posted this picture on Instagram, and we'll find out what she meant. Uh, shortly after she wins, she posted this to Instagram, and it's this picture, and you might be able to read the caption and the hashtag in there because it's kind of small. <coughs> and actually, I can't read it. Okay. <laughs> she quotes Psalm 115 and says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Hashtag, Christ is in me, I am enough. That's what she's talking about. I didn't get recognition. I didn't even need the gold medal because I know who I am. Not because of who I am and what I have done, but because of Christ in me and what he has done. I know where my worth is. I know where my value is. It's not in anything I accomplish. It's not in anything I have. And it's not even in having more of what I already have. It's in what Christ has done for me. And if you do not see the majesty of God, thank you. 14.4 thousand likes. If you do not see the majesty of God, then you won't be able to see anything in your life as you should.
If you do not see that Christ is enough for you and what he has done for you is death on the cross for you, then you will not be able to see anything as you should. You will not know how to be a mother and a father as you should. You will not know how to love sacrificially as you should because you're always going to be doing things ultimately for yourself and not for others. This is why someone could die with joy like Jesus did. This is why he says, for the joy set before me, I endured the cross because I know the glory that is mine. When you see the majesty of God in your life and in his, his life and death and resurrection, then Christ becomes enough for you. Do you live in that daily awareness that Christ is enough for you? Let's pray together.